You're listening to a podcast from the Norwich Showcase, a new international platform for British writing and literature development taking place here in Norwich from Friday 9th of March through to the 13th. Brought to you by Writers' Centre Norwich and British Council. You can find out more about the Norwich Showcase at writerscentrenorwich.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to uh, the final day of the Norwich Showcase and the uh, penultimate creative writing and reading event of our, of our series over the last few days. Um, I'm delighted to introduce the, the curator and host of this session is Professor Catherine Hughes, who's a professor of life writing at UEA. Uh, as, Lavinia and, as with Lavinia and Rebecca, we asked Catherine to select two writers, basically, that she both admired, thought were interesting, thought were kind of special in their field, and uh, that she'd like to come and have read to you and to talk to you about creative non-fiction and writing. So I'm delighted that she's able to have made her choices and that we can welcome William Alexander here today. Um, I'll say no more, really. It's a 90-minute session. Um, you'll hear readings, we hear conversation, and um, then it will be up to you to ask as many questions as you'd like. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Can everybody hear me? I love the idea of being a curator. I, I picked them. I found them in the British Museum. They were, they were in the glass vitrines, and I just thought, mm, those are the two on here. <laughs> Delighted they're here. Um, thanks very much, Chris, for that introduction. Um, I'm just going to explain a little bit about uh, what's the, both the shape of this event and also a little bit about um, the course that it's grown out of. Um, Ten years ago, UEA uh, started the MA in life writing. It was started by the late Lorna Sage, who wrote that brilliant memoir, Bad Blood. Um, and I was involved from the first year. It, it was it, extraordinarily successful. We've had students writing about all sorts of things, from Albert Pierpoint, the last British hangman, to two nurses at the front during the Great War, um, somebody writing about their grandfather. Arthur Rubenstein, anything you can think of, and um, a good proportion of those books going on to get published, which has been extremely gratifying. But recently we've, we've realised that students were increasingly kind of pushing the definitions of what life writing was, what it meant. So the kinds of questions we're getting were, if I want to write a biography of a house, I mean, is that life writing or is that something else? Um, if I want to write about a journey, um, Obviously, I have to go on the journey. So is that autobiography? And then does that count as life writing? And, and one very enterprising student this year, um, I, I know some students are here from the course, uh, one very enterprising student wants to write a, a biography of a bottle of wine. <coughs> and he's a master of wine, so he's allowed to do it. It's not quite as lush as it sounds. Um, again, is that biography, is that something different? So what we found was people were asking questions that pushed at the envelopes of what life writing was and why what it could be, what it wasn't. And so it seems to make sense to expand the course. Um, and as from next October, it will be an MA in, in biography and uh, creative nonfiction, which we think kind of offers a, a kind of larger umbrella for people um, to, to work, to do their work. It, it still raises problems of definitions. Those problems don't go away. But that's what we're going to be talking about a bit today. We've got um, to as I say, very specially curated um, writers who come. Uh, and we're going to talk about our different kinds of creative nonfiction. We all do something slightly different. I'm um, possibly the most straightforward. I'm a biographer. Um, 
and I've written, well, I won't say, um, I've, I've written most recently about uh, Mrs. Beeson, um, and I work in the 19th century. Um, William, uh, on my far left, uh, is, of course, writing mainly in the first person. He's the author of those two brilliant books, The Snow Geese and The Music Room, but it's much, much more than memoir. Uh, what is it, though? I mean, that's maybe one question we can ask. Is it travel writing? Is it science writing? Um, you know, where, do, where does he place himself? Is that kind of liminality, that kind of difficulty about what, he, what he's writing, is that, a, is that a liberation? Or can it actually be rather puzzling? And next to me, we've got Alexander Masters, who might be best described as um, an anti-biographer. Would that be fair? <laughs> I first, this is the embarrassing story, okay, so uh, about, I don't know, five years ago, something like that, yeah. I was doing a piece for The Guardian, where I um, work when I'm not here, and uh, it was a piece about biography and where it was going, and I thought I really, really must talk to Alexander Masters. He's written this amazing book, Stuart's Life Backwards. It's just the, yeah, I just thought it was just brilliant. It's a book that you probably all know about um, a homeless man um, uh, and Stuart Shorter, and it's written backwards, it's written in reverse. It's, it's a kind of archetype of the lives of the obscure, the kind of life that you wouldn't really expect somebody to have a biography about. And so I, I phoned up Alexander and I said, you know, could we talk a little bit? And I asked for your feelings on biography, and what you actually said was, I mean, <laughs> who on earth, Catherine, who on earth would need or want to either write or read a biography about George Eliot, yeah. <laughs> which is actually what I, what I had done. So, um, but I know <laughs> I know exactly what Alexander meant. What he meant was, is there not something very, very stale and kind of pointless about every 10 years rehashing a cradle to grave narrative of our great kind of obvious canon of writers, what, what would be the point? And I, I have to say, I'm inclined to agree with you. Now, Alexander followed um, Stuart up with uh, last year a book which I just adore, and I know my students do as well, because we read it uh, together in December, which is A Genius in My Basement, which is um, a book, again, like Wills, which blends, in this case, math, maths, higher maths, biography, anti-biography. Um, it's about somebody who was apparently a teenage maths genius and lost it. But did he? Is he, in fact, more found than any of us? So absolutely extraordinary books. So I'm delighted that both of them are here today. Um, the structure of the event is that we've, been both, we've all been asked to read or at least present for about 10 minutes each. Um, and then we're going to have what I've written down here is a structured conversation, which might be slightly optimistic. But it will be a conversation that's really like that. I don't know how structured it will be, where we'll just be kind of teasing out some of the things that I talked about, this problems of definition, what we do, what we don't do, the whole thing. So I'm going to start, um, and I'm going to read two pieces. Um, the first is from my biography of Mrs. Beaton. Um, one of the problems that you have, or I have as biographer, um, and again, I think this is a problem with the, with the form, is that there you are going on writing a cradle to grave narrative and you want to suddenly you've come across something really, really interesting. You want to pause the narrative, you want to stop, you want to use a slightly different voice. You don't you want to kind of escape from the world of, you know, it was a, it was a cloudy day or she had a baby or all that, you know, those kind of that rhythm of everyday life. And you want to stop and pause. And how do you do that? Because there's something about the biographical template that just pushes on and marches on. But what I decided to do was in the in the interlude between each chapter, was it were to pause the story and speak in a, in a different kind of voice, an analytic voice perhaps, not a biographical voice. Um, 
I'm absolutely, I think it was reasonably successful. I know that because I've had several um, emails from various biographers saying, would you mind awfully if, if I copied that? I think it's such a good idea. Would you mind if I did it? Because what I, I don't like to tell them, I do tell them, is that I actually copied it, of course I did. I copied it from, I actually copied it from DJ Taylor's book on George Orwell. Um, so, you know, uh, there is nothing new under the sun, but it's, it's just a kind of, I find it quite interesting. So here, each of my interludes uh, is about, is pegged to one of Mrs. Beeson's recipes. Uh, here I'm going to read one, um, and you might want to take notes, because I think it's quite useful in these straightened times. You might find it handy. Uh, it's the only recipe in the whole book that she actually wrote herself. Everything else is copied, again, plagiarised, actually. Um, this one she actually did. And you might wonder, once you've heard it, why she really bothered. It's called Useful Soup for Benevolent Purposes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you feel like being benevolent, or you feel a bit hard up, this is, this is what you invite your friends round for. Ingredients. An ox cheek, any pieces of trimmings of beef, which may be bought very cheaply, a few, a few bones, yeah. <coughs> any pot liquor the larder may furnish, quarter of a peck of onions, six leeks, a large bunch of herbs, half a pound of celery, the outside pieces will do very well. I mean, you obviously wouldn't want to spoil the poor here. Um, half a pound of carrots, half a pound of turnips, half a pound of coarse brown sugar, half a pound of beer, four pounds of common rice. Get a bit of feeling. Um, half a pound of salt, one ounce of black pepper, a few raspings, yum, <laughs> ten gallons of water, thyme, six and a half hours. <laughs> Average cost, a penny halfpenny a quart. Note, the above recipe was used in the winter of 1858 by the author, who made each week in her copper eight or nine gallons of this soup for distribution amongst about a dozen families of the village near where she lives. Now, that village is actually Pinner in North London, and I don't know if you've got any people from London here or know London, but um, I was, I was travelling through Pinner quite recently, and I know we're living in difficult times, but the inhabitants of Pinner don't look like they're much in need of this, this soup, actually, at the moment. It's a very, very prosperous area. So it's something funny, this idea that Pinner would be a place where the poor would flock to your back door and you would dole out this um, rather watery soup. And this is what I say about mm -hmm. it. Over the previous 15 years, dishing up soup to the poor had become a national pastime. The real point about giving soup to the poor, though, was not so much to get hot food inside them cheaply as it was to teach them a lesson. Traditionally, the working class had given sloppy or liquid meals a wide berth, on the sensible grounds that they lacked the cooking facilities to make them, not to mention the crockery and cutlery to eat them with. Bread, by contrast, could be bought ready-made, wrapped in a handkerchief, and held in the fingers. What was worse, from the middle-class philanthropist's point of view, was that the working class lacked the prudence, patience, and foresight that it took to make soup in the first place. Soup was a moral food. <laughs> the emblematic product of the well-run middle-class kitchen in which everyday ingredients were slowly transformed through skill and knowledge into something that served both body and soul. And for a few weeks at least, the poor of Pinner, who clustered around the back of the back door of two Chandis villas, <laughs> it's a great time, two Chandis villas, were given a taste of how fine their lives might be if they could only muster the capacity for the delayed gratification and forward planning required to become efficient soup makers. But soup wasn't simply moral and useful. It was, declares Mrs. Beeson, the starting point for all excellence in cookery. So important, indeed, as Mrs. Beeson believed the process of distilling the essence of meat and vegetables into liquid form to be, that she devotes eight whole pages to its general principles. 
The idea is to keep a pot bubbling away for six hours on the stove, into which you put a slice of beef, mutton and veal, and a clutch of mainly root vegetables, and add water at the rate of a quart for every pound of meat. Once the scum has been skimmed and the stock allowed to cool, you have, says Mrs. Beaton, the starting point for an almost infinite number of soups, from almond soup, which needs a beef and mutton stock, <coughs> you vegetarians would like that, giblet soup, which needs a shin of beef and mutton shank, to hare soup, which needs lean beef and ham. It's confusing, I know. Every one of her 96 bills of fare includes at least one soup in the opening course. There was, however, one recipe for soup that departed from this model of distilling humble, healthy ingredients into a nutritionally and morally rich compost. Newly fashionable turtle soup, explains Beaton, is now served annually at the Lord Mayor's Banquet every November, and should, and, should you wish to make it yourself, she actually includes instructions which are taken from Monsieur Ude's recipe, well-known French chef. But the first line surely would be enough to put anyone off, and this is the first line of the recipe. You might want to take notes again. To make this soup with less difficulty, cut off the head of the turtle the preceding day. <laughs> <laughs> From here, Beaton takes us on a squeamish route march that involves boiling off the beast's shell and then making an accompaniment out of calves udder. So it comes no surprise that by the end of this exhausting operation, Beaton suggests that it might be simpler after all to buy tinned green turtle fat in, I quote, hermetically sealed canisters for seven and six from which six good quarts of soup may be made. Just occasionally, it seemed, seemed soup worked better as fast food. <laughs> so that's, that's my, Mrs. B, that's me trying to find a voice that cuts through that. And you know, I'm sure you know that slightly, even people who really love biographies would say, you know, there's that relentless, and then they went here, and then this happened, and then that happened. And it's just finding a way of, sort of cutting through and taking a step back. Now, I think if I got, got time for an, another quick reading. This is from George Eliot. Um, and uh, one of the problems also of, of writing biography of somebody who's terribly, terribly well-known and much revered is how on earth do you get a sense of what the person is actually like? I mean, George Eliot is, I've used this phrase before, Will has heard all this because we actually did an event together on Friday, so um, he'll have to roll inside. But it's like staring at the sun, is what I said. When you're looking at George Eliot, she's so magnificent, so huge, so extraordinary, so enormous. How on earth would you write in any kind of intimate way about her? Um, and here, what I wanted to do was write about her before she came George Eliot. She didn't start publishing until she was 40. I wanted to find a way of talking about her in a way, write about her in a way that she doesn't know she's going to become George Eliot. I know that. She doesn't know that. Uh, this is a, a, a short anecdote from when she's 30. She comes from the Midlands uh, to work at the Westminster Review, uh, which is a very important leading liberal periodical. The editor is somebody called, jo or the owner is somebody called John Chapman. He's also her landlord, which is never a good combination. I'm sure you'll agree. Especially because, in this case, he is a right old sod. Uh, forget everything you've heard about Victorians being prissy. This, this man is in extremely libidinous. He's also 30. Uh, he has a wife called Susanna. He has a mistress called Elizabeth, who's the governess, who also lives with them. And now he wants to recruit Marion Evans, that's George Eliot, to be his third sexual partner. Okay, so uh, it's, it's kind of a 60s story. <coughs> John Chapman loved and needed women as much as they loved and needed him. 
Unlike so many progressive middle-class men of the mid-century who espoused a program of political, social, and legal reform, Chapman actually believed that all women were his equals and some his superiors. He acknowledged and celebrated Marion's intellect without the least condescension, humbly seeking and following her advice about the edi editorial side of his business. But it wasn't just women's minds that fascinated Chapman. When he eventually qualified as a medical doctor in 1857, he specialized in gynecology, treating um, certain diseases of women by means of heat and cold applied along the spine. That's a quote. Every time his mistress, Elizabeth Tilly, had a period, he marked the event in his diary. Although this was not so much a signal to fuss around her with hot water bottles as to return to his wife's bed. A few years later, he courted Marion's friend Barbara Lee Smith with a peculiar suggestion of having sex with him, and perhaps even a baby would sort out her menstrual cycle. <laughs> I've heard some chat-up lines about her. But once again, the clinical noting down of the physical intimacies between them, this time a series of explicit letters to Lee Smith, seems to have been the crucial ingredient in Chapman's enjoyment of their affair. But Chapman's need for multiple partners had less to do with intellectual conviction and more with a craving for the excitement and chaos inevitably engendered. The slammed doors, tearful scenes and angry words made him feel alive in a way in which the deep calm of monogamy never could. Whenever his personal life looked like in danger of settling, he whipped up a storm by showing one lover a letter written by another. His habit of candor allowed him to pass on information, encourage confrontations, and generally keep the drama at fever pitch. And then, when it seems as if there was nothing more to savour, he lived the experience again in a series of anguished diary entries. And I'm just going to read you a diary entry, um, January the 22nd, 1854. So he now has uh, a wife, Susanna, um, a governess mistress, Elizabeth, and a new lodger, Marion. Um, and they, they all, he's sleeping with all of them. Um, January the 22nd. Invited Miss Evans, that's George Eliot, to go out after breakfast. Did not get a decisive answer. Elizabeth said afterwards, if I did go, she'd be glad to go. I then invited Miss Evans again, telling her Elizabeth would go, whereupon she declined, rather rudely. <laughs> Susanna being willing to go out, and neither Elizabeth nor Susanna wishing to walk far, I proposed they should go a short distance without me, <laughs> which Elizabeth considered an insult from me, and reprimanded me in no, in no measured terms accordingly, and heaped upon me suspicions and accusations I do not in any way deserve. <laughs> I was very severe and harsh, and said things I was sorry for afterwards, and we became reconciled in the park. Miss Evans apologised for her rudeness tonight, which roused all Elizabeth's jealousy again and consequent bitterness. Susanna, Elizabeth and Miss Evans had gone to spend the evening with Mr and Mrs Holland. Having a sexual interloper in the house at least had the effect of drawing Susanna and Elizabeth closer together, that's the wife and the mistress. All it took was a little stirring on Elizabeth's part for wife and mistress to reach the joint conclusion that Miss Evans and Chapman were, in the latter's complacent phrase, completely in love with each other. The recognition laid the ground for some new and exciting scenes in which the four main players spent their time flouncing out of rooms, having headaches, and suing for uneasy peace. <laughs> Thank you very much. Two very short things. Um, one about birds and one about trees. Um, 
my first book is called The Snow Geese, and it's about lots of things. Um, really, it's about the idea of home and the idea of our longing for home, the idea of belonging, um, which I think are all sort of universal currents and impulses. But the structure of the book and the kind of most overt story in the book is the story of a quest to follow migrating geese on their spring migration from Texas to Baffin Island in North America to the Arctic Circle, um, which seemed like a crazy idea. It seems like a crazy idea now, but then when I was convinced it was the most sensible thing uh, to do. Also, The Snow Geese is a story about illness and recovery, about returning to the world, to all the sensations and richnesses of the world after a, an absence from it. And I suppose, in one sense, um, the narrator of the book is sort of gulping down the world. And that, I think, strikes me about this passage, which is just about my first encounter with snow geese. Um, I'd gone to a town called Eagle Lake, which was said to be the snow geese capital of Texas. And it was a small town with a railroad running through the middle. And lots of goose hunters converged there to go and shoot these geese. Um, and I'd met one called Ken, and he said that the next morning he would take me out to see geese out on the prairies. Um, and so uh, the next afternoon I went, I went with him. Ken drove off in the Dodge, leaving me alone on the prairie. It was just after six o'clock. I parked the Cavalier at the edge of the flooded field and waited, tense, eyes keen, vigilant for geese. I lifted my binoculars and panned across the water, finding ducks floating in twos and threes, waders tottering as if on stilts at the edge of the pond. In the front of the sun, the birds were silhouettes, and I was too much of an amateur to tell one species from another. But when I saw eight tall, slender birds with the long necks, legs, and bills of herons, and shaggy tail bustles, and the dainty gait of ballerinas, I knew instantly that they were sandhill cranes, the oldest species of bird in existence, known to have lived in Nebraska in the Neocene nine million years ago. Birds which, it was once believed, helped smaller birds migrate by carrying them on their backs. The sun was close to the horizon now, not the source of light, but the point to which all light was gathered, as if the day were going home. I leaned back against the car on the brink of geese, my ears tuned, my eyes alive to the slightest movement. Ducks muttered on the shallow water. Red lights glimmered like cigarette tips on the radio masts. I heard bells pinging in Eagle Lake several miles to the northeast, and then the rumble of a freight train, the ground vibrating with its industrial repercussions. <coughs> there was a pale streaked redness in the west, but the rest of the sky was a deep, liquid Prussian blue with a pair of bright stars appearing, Venus and Jupiter in conjunction. A bird approached the pond, a heron, a great blue, easy to distinguish from a crane because herons fly with a pleat in their necks, heads retracted onto shoulders, while cranes stretch their necks, necks out straight without a kink. Sometimes we came across solitary grey herons standing like Baptists on the banks of the saw brook or at the edge of a pond footed to their own reflections. And my mother had painted one, its yellow scabbard-shaped bill and eye, the wispy black plumes at the back of its head, <coughs> on a strip of old roller blind that hung in the bathroom. 
the window looking out at trees with rooks cawing hoarsely in their heights, a kingfisher of smoky chipped glass standing on the sill beside a tin tray of quartz, pumice and agate pieces, the white wall to the left of the door marked with initials, dates and horizontal dashes, children's heights measured year by year, heels to the skirting board. This great blue flew right over the holding pond, a ray ghosting through seawater, with five American white pelicans following behind, heads retracted like the herons, gula pouches sagging like jowls under their long bills. It was half past six. I leaned back against the blue car, waiting. The first sign was a faint tinkling in the distance from no particular direction, the sound of a marina of halyards flicking on metal masts. Drifts of specks appeared above the horizon ring. Each speck became a goose. Flocks were converging on the pond from every compass point, a diaspora in reverse, snow geese flying in loose V's and W's and long skeins that wavered like seaweed strands, each bird intent on the roost at the center of the horizon's circumference. Lines of geese broke up and then recombined in freehand ideograms, kites, chevrons, harpoons. I didn't move. I just kept watching the geese, the halyard yammer growing louder and louder, until suddenly flocks were flying overhead, low over the shoulder, the snow geese yapping like small dogs, crews of terriers or dachshunds, urgent sharp yaps in the thrum and riffle of beating wings and the pitter-patter of goose droppings pelting down around me. They approached the roost on shallow glides, arching their wings and holding them steady, or flew until they were right above the pond and then tumbled straight down on the perpendicular. Sometimes whole flocks circled over the roost, thousands of geese swirling round and round as if the pond were the mouth of a drain and these geese the whirlpool turning above it. Nothing had prepared me for the sound, this dense, boisterous din, the clamour of a playground at break time, a drone thickness flecked with high-pitched yells, squeals, hollers and yawps, the entire prairie's quota of noise concentrated in Jack's holding pond by the two-storey house and the raised lake stocked with bass for fishing. I breathed it in. It was seven o'clock. There was a half moon. I waited until the birds were settled, then drove back slowly along the farm tracks, leaving the headlights off until I reached the highway. Um, but I hope we'll come later on to talk about maybe how I came to write the snow piece and write it in the way that I did. Um, that was just a very short taste of it. And I thought um, I'd try something a bit uh, incredibly 21st century. I heard a speaker earlier talking about um, the interactions of literature and technology and how we weren't just in a web 2.0 world, we were now in a web 3.0 world. I, I, I can't quite see what a 3.0 world is, but maybe it's what I'm about to do now, which I'm going to try and read you a story off my telephone. Um, very recently I was asked to write a story by the Woodland Trust. Um, the Woodland Trust asked various writers to um, uh, write new stories about trees, fables about trees on the kind of Aesop model. And um, I, I wrote one about an ash tree, and it's called Why the Ash Tree Has Black Buds. And perhaps for international delegates here, I should explain that the ash tree is one of the great native trees of Britain. Um, and one of its kind of diagnostic features, one, it's, one of its real distinctive features, is that it has black buds. And I can't think of another tree that 
in, in Britain that has black buds. Why the ash tree has black buds? The trees have always had some idea of what happens to them when they die. In forests, they saw neighbours toppled by wind or age and rotting into earth. Roots sent up descriptions of peat and coal in vast beds and seams. Later, when humans came along, trees saw the stockades, the carts pulled by horses, the chairs and tables set out in gardens, and quickly put two and two together. Trees growing beside rivers saw themselves in the hulls and masts of boats, and trees in orchards understood that the ladders propped against them had once been trees, and when men approached with axes to fell them, the trees recognised the handles. Actually, none of this was big news to trees, who dreamed such transformations long before humans had the wit to invent them. Trees often wondered what their particular fate might be. Would they subside into the long sleep of coal, or blaze for an hour in a cottage grate, or find themselves reconfigured as handle, hurdle, post, shaft, stake, joist, beam, or something more elaborate and rare, an abacus, a chess piece, a harpsichord. And out of these dreams, a rumour moved among the trees of the world like a wind, not quite understood at first, it was so strange. A rumour that when they died, instead of being burned, planed, planked, shimmed, sharpened, many trees would be pulped. And this was an entirely new concept to trees, whose self-image was all to do with trunk, sturdiness, backbone, form. But trees are good at getting the hang of things, and soon they understood that from pulp would come the white leaves humans called paper, and that these leaves would be bound into books. And after a short season of anxiety in which conifers shed uncharacteristic quantities of needles, the trees came to terms with this new possibility in the range of their afterlives. Yes, the trees recognised themselves in paper, in books, just as they recognised themselves in all the other things that hadn't been thought of quite yet, like bedsteads and bagpipes and bonfires, not to mention violins, cricket bats, toothpicks, clothes pegs, chopsticks and misericords. Men and women would sit in the shade of trees reading books, and the trees, dreaming of all that was to come, saw that they were the books as well as the chairs the men and women sat in, and the combs in the women's hair, and the shiny handles of the muskets, and the hoops the children chased across the lawns. And the trees took pride in the idea of being a book. They thought a book was a noble thing to become if you had to become anything. A terrible bore to be a rafter, after all, and a wheel would mean such a battering, though of course the travel was a bonus. And what tree in its right mind would wish to be rack, coffin, crucifix, gallows? One tree was more excited than all the rest, and that was the ash. The ash has such an inviting, feathery shade. When men and women first had books to take into the shade of trees, they often chose the shade of an ash. The ash would look down at these people reading and see how they were discovering new regions inside themselves, and notice how when they stood up and left the jurisdiction of its branches, they had changed as if buds inside them were coming into leaf. And the ash saw that this change was a property of the marks on the paper, and that paper was like a leaf with a world inside it. And soon ash trees were discussing this phenomenon all over the place, whispering about books in Manchuria and Poland and the Pennines, passing information from grove to grove, 
until ash trees across North America and the eastern and western Palearctic were sighing and swaying with thoughts of words and pens and poems and printing presses and Odysseus and Scheherazade and the Song of Songs. So ash trees dreamed of becoming books themselves one day, even though they would be much in demand as firewood and prized as material for oars, hockey sticks and the chassis frames of Morgan motor cars. Sometimes, dreaming ahead, they saw men and women sitting beneath them, writing, writing in notebooks and diaries, writing letters of love and consolation, writing stories. And the ash tree wanted to be that too, not just the book, but the writing in it, the words that carried the worlds. They saw the men and women holding their pens and the ink that came out of them onto the paper. And although they didn't have hands, they tried to curl their branches into fingers that might hold pens. And they dreamed it so vividly that the tips of their fingers turned black with ink as they waved against the white blank page of the sky, trying to write on it. Look closely, the ash tree has black buds and the branches bend upwards at their tips towards the whiteness. Can you hear me? Do I have to turn something? Do I have to turn that? Yeah, that's proper. I'm not going to read. Um, partly I didn't bring my book along, so I can't. And partly because I thought, partly I want to answer the point you brought up. Um, but I feel and would you please tell me if I'm getting near my time? I might borrow your watch. Okay. <laughs> um, I wanted. To, I often get asked where I've only done two two of these books, but I often get asked where do I find these people? Because I've now got a third person, and I was lining up a fourth yesterday. Uh, sort of people I, I like writing books about. There are unknown people who I think have something remarkable about them, and something which I would like to, I feel, warrants a biography. Um, I don't really know whether biography is the right term or sort of portrait is the right term, or also I sometimes think of well, my two books and what I would like to do with these other books as being a sort of research work for fiction writers. So the number of times I've read a fiction writer write about a homeless person, and it's no homeless person I've ever met in my life, I have no idea where they think homeless people do these things or why they behave like this, I have no idea. And so it seemed to me, after writing Stuart, which was about a homeless man I knew and met, and who informed me what this life was like. This was a valuable thing. You would fiction writers who want to write about people on the streets and want to sort of impose a kind of, what always ends up being when fiction writers write about homeless people is a kind of a flattening imagination. You know, they're, they're determined to imagine what it's like being homeless, but you'll never see them go out and ask a homeless person what it's like. They're all sort of determined to bring it out of their you know, their thoughts, their, their, their sensitivities, and so on. So I, part of what I view these books like and um, is sort of doing research work for other people to pick up who need these characters. Well, if you need this sort of character, here I've done five years on homelessness, and I've done five years on a faded genius. If you need other characters, I can't offer you. I can't do that. So I think the answer is, or I won't say it, how do I meet these people? They're all over the place. And I'll give you an example, well, I'll give you two examples. Um, one is the next book I'm working on, I'm trying to work on, it's, it's all a bit tense at the moment. A friend of mine was walking past a skip 
in Cambridge, and she looked in this skip, and there were 150 diaries inside the skip. And if you may not have thought about this, but a diary, no one ever writes their name in a diary. You learn everything about the person, but not their name. So it seemed to me interesting, could you write a biography about someone when you begin the biography without knowing who the biography is about? And this seemed to me a remarkable thing. And also, could you do some, a biography about someone when what, what, you're, what, what you're really doing is, is that the question that's motivating the biography is not so much, is this person interesting, but why has this person been thrown out? And I think with all of these books, or with all of the people, if you're looking for interesting people who are unknown people to write books about, what you're asking for is, or what you want with each of those people is, is sort of a question that goes, how in the hell did dot, dot, dot? How did it happen that this person was thrown out? How did it happen that this person ended up on the streets? What is it like for someone who has an enormous talent to suddenly find it fading? And to me, that is the interest of biographies or portraits or discussions of whatever term we want to use for, for it, of unknown people. And anyone about whom you can ask, or you pause for a moment to wonder what it was that brought the significant, significant quality of this person out, um, is, is a person who warrants such a book. Uh, so, so anyway, the skip person seems to me a very interesting person. So I looked through all these diaries. My first thought was I had to find out who this person was. I mean, was it male or female? Well, eventually it turned out it was a woman. And you found that out by the amount of discussions of visits to toilets and things. <laughs> um, and it's fascinating. This sort of thing is fascinating because I never realized how, you know, what is it like when... What do women do when there aren't men around? It's really very peculiar if you don't know, because I've only seen women when there's a man about. Yeah. And so what you do when there aren't men about, I mean, the things I've learned about the period is really enormous. They're amazing. And it's just the attitude. So, so for me, it's a very intriguing thing. It's an investigation, a sort of investigation of, of a, a sort of a private life that I know nothing about, and which I would find very difficult ever to find out anything about, because any woman trying to describe it to me. I'm there. I'm, I'm the bloke in the room. But also, it was just the pursuit of trying to figure out who, who this person was. So the book, If I Can Make It Work, would be, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting slightly entangled because I'm trying to think, I, I was sort of putting together this, this plea for more people to do books like this on the, way, on the train up, and um, I haven't quite worked it out properly. Um, with this, with this person, so, so my idea was for this person, or what interested me was how did she end up, how did these books end up in the skip? And so I found out first she was a woman, but I still didn't know her name. And I, I worked it out that what had probably happened is she, she was a housekeeper, she was a housekeeper. And she was a housekeeper to a professor in Cambridge. And I figured out that what happened, she must have died. And then two years later, the professor died. And after he died, there was a house clearance, and so they dumped all the stuff in the bin. And that's when my friend found them. This was about 10 years ago. So I start reading through these things. And my girlfriend is an academic, and she's saying, you've got to order these things. You've got to sort them out. And say, no, 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 I don't want to order them. Because you know, this is how they were brought. They're in, they're in this box. They're brought out of this gift. But this is the last sort of element of her life this year. I don't even want to take them out of the box, because the way the air is in there somehow encapsulates her. It's important to preserve. So for years, I didn't take them out of the box. 
Or I would take one or two out, and then I quickly put it back in, and I envisaged I'd have little sort of archaeological diagrams of sort of excavating the rocks and so on. Thinking that all of this was in some way preserving this life. Well, finally, about two weeks ago, I did take them out of the box, and I dated them all and sorted them all out. And I immediately found out two things. First is, so it was 150 books I had, and it was about a tenth of the total. This woman, whoever she was, wrote about 1,000 books covering a period from 19, early 1950s to 2000. So she got about, sometimes she used 20 books to cover a year. The second thing I discovered was that she was alive. And that's why, at the moment, I'm in a slightly <laughs> difficult position with my next book, because on Friday I sent her a letter <laughs> saying, um, do you mind if we do a book together? about your life. But the point is, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I've read all your diaries. <laughs> the point is that this was an unusual, this was, a, I was very lucky to get these diaries. But I don't think it's a luck that's sort of particular to me. I mean, it's not. A few days ago also, I was in a, in a cafe in Cambridge, and there's a person I've been watching for years, because it's a very good place to pick up such people. Um, <laughs> First thing in the morning in cafes in any decent city, usually a lot of care in the community people are out there. And they're always interesting. They've always got some little quirk. And you wonder, well, what, what, why, is, why is that quirk? What's that mean? Which seems to me to be the basis of a book. If you ask that question, it should be the basis of a book. Anyway, there's one fellow there who's not, he's not care in the community. He's sort of, there's clearly something a little odd about him. And, he, and people go first thing in the morning. I, I go first thing in the morning to cafes because it's nice and quiet. And you, if you feel you want to be isolated, it's a lovely place to be. You know, cafes that open 6.30 or 7 or something. So anyway, I've been watching him, and, and gradually I started chatting to him. And he has been, every time he reads Jane Austen, he buys a new copy, and he underlines the bits he likes. And he reads them repeatedly, and he's done it for 40 years. He has in his house a pile of all the Jane Austens with all the different underlinings for every year of his life. <laughs> well, wow, that would be a biography, wouldn't it? Through the bits that you'd underlined on the Jane Austens. Um, so this is my plea is to people, that this is what we need. They aren't quite biographies, I don't think, or what I see myself as doing is not quite biographies. What they are is portraits. They're attempts to portray a life that has found itself in an intriguing situation. And in particular, there are books not just about another person, but books that are in some ways about ourselves. Because this is the person we might be had things been a little different. Stuart is someone you might be had your childhood been absolutely terrible, but also had things gone wrong in ways that he describes that don't necessarily mean your childhood has to be terrible. But they're within grasp, these characters, characters who you feel you might be. Um, and I think they, remain, they become stories about us because they represent in emotional extremity what we might be, but also because in order to understand them and to understand their lives and to appreciate how they got to this state, we have to bring ourselves into it. And they become books about relationships with odd characters. And I think although there aren't many people who warrant a book, there are very few relationships that don't. And that seems to me the essence of the sort of writing that I feel is in, important in, in this sort of area of biography, or whatever you want to call it. Thank you.
absolutely fascinating. Um, now we're going to um, embark on the on the conversation, which may or may not be structured. Um, just something I was, I was thinking about that, that came up immediately um, when I was listening to both of you is this 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 really this different and yet same notion of how you negotiate yourself in relation to your material. So Will you know, writes in what appears to be a first person. Uh, Alexander, you, you don't write a third person, but as you said, you know, you are there, you are inside. And, um, I just wonder if you could say, perhaps, Will, if you could start us off. I mean, when you first started writing, people don't expect young men, you must have been <coughs> in the early 30s when you wrote uh, <coughs> Snoopies. I mean, yeah, people, earlier now, late 20s. Okay, yeah, people don't yeah. expect, you know, autobiography is the work of people who've lived decades. So how did you first come, and how do you negotiate that? Well, I, I never really thought of the Snoopies as an autobiography, and, and, um, and certainly didn't, weirdly didn't think it was about me. Even I've written two autobiographical books, I don't think either of them about me particularly. Um, and, and I suppose the Snow Geese came out of a whole lot of different strands of reading. And I, I'd been reading lots of novels and lots of poems, but also lots of books about sort of nature books, science books, uh, books about evolutionary biology, and, um, and lots of kind of first person essays where, where the the first person was used not particularly to refer back to the autobiography of the writer and the life of the writer, but more as a sort of periscope by which the reader can see into the world. And that's how I think of the eye in my books, actually, is that sort of periscope. And I suppose I had this, uh, uh, well, a slight sense that um, I didn't really know what sort of book I was writing, actually, and I didn't really want it to be a sort of book at all. I, I just wanted it to be the snow geese and be as sort of richly the snow geese as it could be. Um, but I saw it drawing on all of those different strands, on autobiography, on novels, on poems, on science, on nature, on essays, uh, on travel, on all of those different genres. And I suppose I had this idea that it, that it wasn't as if uh, you're bequeathed, or any of us are bequeathed, six templates into which we have to shoehorn our way of seeing the world. We can make a form, a biography of someone through their Jane Austen books. I adore that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, um, we, make, we can make a form that's appropriate for what we want to express and the experience of the world we want to express. So I didn't see the, the snow geese really fitting into any of those things in particular. But I found that the first person was a very sort of flexible way of doing lots of different things. I could tell a story, I could have characters and interactions and scenes, but then I could also have a chapter about the evolution of migratory behavior or you know, the science of avian my, my biology or the history of medicine and the, the development of nostalgia as a medical idea. Um, and the story of the Odyssey and the Nostoy, the Greek stories about return. I mean, you could take all of those things in because the first person I, the essayist's I, gave you that kind of latitude that I think in a novel would seem contrived because you'd always be shoehorning the research in and everyone would be going, oh, there's the research, um, give me a break. Yeah. Um, now, Alexander, in, in a sense, you're not that present, so it, it's kind of a shock. I mean, the ingenious, uh, the second book. Where there's a, there's a photograph of you looking rather wild, <laughs> and it's 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 kind of 
it's quite it's quite shocking when you turn up and you, mm. you manage to do this thing of being both clearly we know you must be present because you're describing conversations that you're mm. having with your subject and yet we we don't learn much about you and I, I've he heard people feel a bit short take you know we yeah, want we want, we want I, I, that was, I mean it's fairly deliberate um, to avoid you know try and get myself in without really doing it except that ghastly photo <laughs> which was which came about because there came a point where it was just this book was taking so long I said right I'm not going to cut my hair until I finish the book right. and then the book continued to take a hell of a long time and I was just looking just horrendous and I was just horrendous in every way and eventually I had to give up that vow uh, and the book still was gone yeah. um, but I don't know I, to me when I when I wrote Stuart and I used I, I think having learned that as a technique during Stuart I then used it for Simon to me I thought my role was really the reader I was the reader, and I had to use my gut. There is Stuart, he's this homeless bloke. I'd been working on the streets a bit myself, so I knew a little bit about it. But why didn't he go get a job? It really seemed to me a basic question. It's a hard one to answer, because you go down to the Dole office, and there are jobs all over the shop. You know, there's plenty of jobs. There's plenty of places to sleep. There are plenty of places to live. There are people just breaking themselves trying to be nice to homeless people. Why doesn't it work? But what seemed to me, you know, so I had to be in the role of someone who, who could go up to, I mean, Stuart was a remarkable person that I could ask him these things. But to go up to Stuart and say, well, why don't you get a job? And he would then explain it to me and wouldn't beat me up yeah. as I asked him. <laughs> um, but the explanation was very interesting because then you realize, well, hang on, some of you, yeah, there are dossiers out there and they probably well should get a job. And there are other people where it's a completely different set of things. And they became, through being the sort of prejudiced, kind of anti doubting, suspicious person, the reader, about this, but the person who was ignorant. Okay, so that's, that's the role of I, is ignorance. Mm. That's what the I stands for in, in those two books, I think. And the same with Simon. I don't understand your work. Explain it to me. I don't understand what it's like to be that good at something. Explain it to me. And to ask the very sort of basic questions. But for me to intrude as a character, then I stop being, I, it starts being, it muddies it. Right. That, I mean, this is me in hindsight saying that, but I think that's sort of what motivated me. And what you both do is that the remarkable parallels here, as Willis said, is that you use this form as a, as a kind of portmanteau for, I, mean, I was going to say smuggling it, but that sounds um, slightly kind of illicit and shifting, simply as a, as, a, as, a, as a place to put all kinds of information that just wouldn't be available in any other way. We're talking about nature in, in your case, and in your case we're talking both about higher mathematics, but also about um, the logistics of Homelessness. I mean, I seem to remember that in the original version of Stuart, the first draft, I'm sure you told me when I've, I've read it, that it was in fact, you, you, but you dramatised the fact that you were trying to write a sort of thesis on yeah. homelessness. Yeah. You know, and it just, it really was boring. boring. Yeah. So. I mean, it's very, because, because I think you're, you're sort of reluctant to, to, to be opinionated if you do that. Whereas your, I think what you do, I mean, you do it in your second book as well, in the music room, where you have this lovely interleaving of of the sort of business about the, the awareness of what fits involved, what sort of epilepsy involves. And What's definitely striking chord with me what Alexander says, that I, for me, the, the first person, which, yes, is more prominent in my books, but it, it, similarly, I feel that first person is an, it acts as an, a, the agent of curiosity mm. in the book, which is my curiosity, but also I hope mm. the reader's curiosity. And so each book is a journey of discovery, both for the, for the eye that's telling it and for the reader. So, as you say, in the music room, there's this sort of parallel narrative going on that's about the history of neuroscience. 
and the story of how, well, the, the, the basic principles underpinning our understanding of how the brain works, which is partly to put my brother's experience in a sort of bigger context, in a medical and historical context, but also part of the theme of the book, which is, a, I think, one of the sort of things sort of underlying the music room is a sort of gasp of wonder at the brain and at the miracle of personality and the consciousness and that the hundred billion cells in our heads are producing us with all our differences and our dreams and our different inner lives and our different behaviours and characteristics. Um, but I, but I, and I, I found that if, you see, if I was trying to do that in a novel, it would have always been the yeah, it, been it would have been incredibly annoying. It would have been a yeah. research thing, and you see it in novels. <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names, but you do see it. You do see it, and um, and it's incredibly sort of uh, tiresome for a reader. But I think, I think but, but the, the, the that this other form, I think, <coughs> I felt gave a freedom to do that. And then there's a the chance of setting up lots of different sort of echoes and and harmonies and um, resonances between those different strands. So so although they're sort of interleaved. There's also a baton being passed on between the lyrical, autobiographical parts and the more scientific mm. parts in the music room. They're linked by images. So, you know, the electric fish that the Romans use as cures for headaches uh, become the fish that are in the moat that are electrocuted that rise to the top, and the iron bar that goes through Phineas Gage's head, that's the first case study in um, uh, frontal lobe syndrome, becomes the iron bar that my brother picks up in the house and so on. There are all these there are all these little image strands that are kind of binding the book together. And so they're not, they're these different registers that are part of this sort of whole. Well, I think the other effect is, particularly when you have a book about something, such a moving situation, you have to have pauses from it. You can't, there's a point at which, you know, because it's true, and because we're absolutely there, and because you're, you have the unexpectedness of I mean, you can just tell the book is, has not been made up mm -hmm. because of this sense of the, the constant awareness of unexpectedness and the constant sort of tension we have feeling about your brother. But you need pauses in that. Mm -hmm. You need to sort of have a sort of sigh while that, that settles in, that last dramatic scene settles in. And I think it works very well like that to sort of allow us to withdraw and, and come back sort well, of refreshed with a bit of different knowledge. That's exactly what I'd hoped is that the reader would have these sort of breathing spaces or a bit like walking through a city, you need to get to a park, you need to sit down on a bench. But also, because of those shifts of register, one part of the brain would be able to relax. You'd have this quite intense, lyrical, mm. emotional stuff, and then this much drier, scientific voice. And so one part of the brain would be able to relax while the other switched on and hopefully would then be ready for the next surge. But it's reminding me of, of Stuart. I mean, and you say that the first person is kept out, but actually, the way I remember Stuart, Stuart, there are quite a few scenes of you and Stuart together. Yeah. Which, yeah. which similarly move you into a different register, and we're into this conversation rather than the retrospective yeah. account of the past. And I, actually, I remember those moments very strongly. Well, I, in Stuart's flat, where you, you would bring him a draft of, yeah. of where you got to. And so you on. see, the other thing yeah. I found, I mean, the, the sort of, if you're. If, I, I tend to dislike books that are written in the present tense, but I, that's the books I write. I mean, I, I, I'm always saying, oh, why do you have to use the present tense? I mean, what sort of affectation is this? And then I go and I write in the present tense. And I, I think, particularly with Stuart's case, where I got into the habit, was because you got the disruption of it. And 
so this sense of the, the disorder that of Stuart's life became, I can't quite remember how this relates to the point you just made, but yeah. I'll continue with it anyway. <laughs> um, the, the value of the present tense was it gave a sort of disruption and an immediacy and a sense, I think, with, well, with, with the music room and what I'm trying to do as well, the sense that the book is a process of discovery and because I've got to make my apology in public to <laughs> yeah. repeatedly for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, uh, reading George Eliot, I think you do it as well. This voyage, this voyage, I hate that word, this sense of gradually exposing the person. So you have this real opposition to her, right? Yeah. You know, at the beginning where you're sort of disapproving of all sorts of things. She's kind of a prig, mm -hmm. you know, all these things. Clearly this is going to change. You feel it's going to, the excitement is the, the sort of exposing of the person. And I love that in a book. I love books where the person who writes the book at the beginning is different from the person who writes the book at the end, and it's very difficult to preserve that. However that related to your point about present tense, I don't remember. But Something we talked about the other day, about how, of course, in the biography, in, in your books, Catherine, there's, the first person is always there, but even though it's sort of behind a curtain mm. a little bit. And, and I mentioned a very powerful moment in uh, Kate Summerscale's book, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, where you know the account of the, the child murder and the detective going in to investigate it in the country house and so on, where at the very end of the book, she <coughs> steps out and suddenly you get the first person, but literally on the last two or three pages, and it's very powerful, mm. because suddenly we're reminded that that person who's been there all along, who's been telling this story, who's been, whose subjectivity has been in the book because she's been making the decisions about what images to put in, what moments to accentuate, she suddenly stepped out from behind the curtain and said, here I am. And, this, and all of this work, all of this research and these images and these demons have been having an impact on me too. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah. What a, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, think, I think biography is the most, um, in a sense, a very, an incredibly powerful eye lurks behind you know, the most apparent land of, of third-person narratives. There are differences in it. There's something I want to come on to. I, I can't make things, I'm not allowed to, the, the parameters so far within which I've worked, so I can't make things up. So if somebody did go to Leeds on the 12th of August, you know, they, they have to, even if I really want them to have gone two days earlier, I can't make them do that. Um, now, in both your cases, you, you have different relationships. I mean, for example, Alexander, you reconstruct, well, in fact, you both reconstruct conversations, which, um, you know, a, a, a particularly kind of hardline reader might think, how did they, were they taking shorthand? Of, you know, how did, what is this? Is this not? Digital recorders. Yeah. I have a digital voice recorder. Right. But I have <coughs> acres of reproductions. I still reconstruct conversations. Right. Go the way I want them. <laughs> but you, you do. Basically, yeah. basically, basically yeah. both of you, mm -hmm. um, can I say make things up? No. Because <laughs> no, I know that's not? worrying. Why not? Mm -hmm. I, don't mind, I don't mind that. In fact, I was, doing a talk um, the other day, and I was sort of saying about, you know, this type of writing, and I just went through the list, I think, and, and the list of things that are good things to do, steal, plagiarize, <laughs> um, things that, you know, all that. I think that's all open to you. But I think, and I felt this particularly with Stuart, well, with, particularly with Stuart and Simon, the thing that I had to do was show my hand. When I'm writing about Stuart, if I'm frustrated about him, or if there's, for example, the only bit, I, there are a couple of bits I made up in Stuart, and one bit where I'm in, imagining what it was like when he was being bullied as a kid. 
Well, clearly, I, I don't know, and you can clearly tell that goes into a sort of slightly, to me now, slightly annoying fictional style that lasts a page or two. And that's, so that was all right, but as long as you sort of show your hand that this is what you're doing, that you introduce your fallibility as being part of the story, that seems to me all right. And with Simon, the same sort of thing. With Simon's great, great frustration and the great joy of Simon, what I wanted to do was write, the various reasons I wanted to write about him, but I wanted to write about a happy man. I love the idea of writing about a happy man after having written about such a tragic one. And I just wondered how you do it. And also, the extra problem he threw in is he didn't give a damn about his life. So that was another fun. How could you write about a happy man who didn't care anything about the thing you were writing about? You know, all that sort of fun. And so I had to, in that case, get much more involved in it. And as long as I showed my hand, as long as I showed what I was doing to try and get around this problem, it became a sort of comment on the difficulties of dealing with such a person, and yet such a person is worth dealing with because they have something wonderful to say. You have this wonderful phrase which you say, it's like trying to write the biography of a hedge, which I just think is the most wonderful it is. Right, it was. <laughs> but well, you've got slightly different feelings, haven't you? And well, I, I certainly, I think there's a, a sort of base level where I, I won't make things up, and, and my books are true stories, but at the same time they are stories, and I, um, so I, I do, I recreate dialogue, and almost always it's not recorded, it's, it's remembered. Uh, and I do think that, I remember Ali Smith talking about these books and, and using the phrase, um, truth in conference with the imagination. And I think that is going on. And I, but I think that's an understanding between the writer and the reader, that when I, when I write down a, or, or have a scene with a conversation in it, that I'm, we know that there's something imaginative going on, that I'm re-inhabiting that moment. Um, but there's a sort of fundamental truth to the story that's being told. <coughs> when we, we bump into a friend and they say, um, oh, you know, I, I, saw, um, I saw Abigail this week and she told me about her splitting up with her boyfriend and you know what she said, she said blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you could say, but did she actually say that? How do you know she actually said that? Did you have a voice recorder? You're being told a story. And, and, and part of the contract of having a relationship with that friend is that you accept, you, you, you sort of, you're on board with them. And I think that something like that exists in, in writing. I mean, but, but, it, but all of these books exist on a kind of continuum, with at one end something like uh, Bob Woodward's Bush at War, where he's in the Bush White House in the build-up to the invasion of Iraq. And if he says that Donald Rumsfeld said in a cabinet meeting, blah, 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 we've got to be damn sure that he did actually say that. But then there's a, there's a continuum. And in my books, if there's a conversation, it's, it's, as, it's as best I can do. But um, this, I mean, this is what anyone writing an autobiography has to do, anyone writing a memoir. I mean, they did, they did be pretty weird if all the time they had their voice recorder there. Yeah. But I mean, if you're recollecting um, something that happened in your childhood or something you remember your mother saying, your father saying, your family saying, you, you put that in. I mean, we were talking just before, and I was admiring your, the use of, of recollected conversation. You use it, it's very succinct, it's always the point, it illustrates something, and it clearly is the way you remember the thing. I can't see how else you would write it. You're in a different position with, with George Eliot, obviously, because you have to go on the material that's offered to you. It's not your personal recollection. Um, what is personal is your sort of opinion of her, and, and that's what gives it its strength. Yeah, 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 and also, you know, I mean, there's something like nine printed volumes of letters. Yeah. Um, 
how well is it worth fillets them, exactly. puts them together to yeah. make a new story. It's of course all about. Uh, in fact, I showed my. I mean, it's quite an old book now, but I, I remember showing it to um, my brother. In fact, when I finished his manuscript and showing it to him and saying, "What do you, what do you, what do you think?" And he said, um, "Yeah, it's fine." I mean. And obviously, it's about you. <laughs> and I was yeah. just slightly offended. Georgia was felt she was the plainest woman in London. And I just thought, God, is that is that sort of you know is that what my brother thinks about? But <laughs> but I can say, you know, I thought that was interesting. Where we, he he said, yes, it's you, you know, it's, it's you and it's Georgia. So this is this kind of you know the, where the two meet. What of course most people, and in a sense, the most. Um, worrying thing about biography, this kind of straightforward biography, is that all the things we've been talking about that you both, in a sense, dramatise and put on the page mm. are silent, are not attended to in biography. That's what makes it a slightly worrying kind of narrative. Um, it, it, it dresses itself up in the language and appearance of objectivity, sobriety, mm. absolutely. I mean, I think Jan Mark has a wonderful passage in her book about Sylvia Plath, it has a bank-like solidity. Yeah. Like, I'm, here yeah. I am, I wouldn't dream of telling you, you know. Mm. And of course it's, it's as devious and partial mm. as, you know, mm. anxious and worried as any other kind really of story. As soon as you put one image down on a page, there's, there's a process of selection at work. You're, you're choosing <coughs> to point out one thing rather than another. And that is because of your sensibility and your particular creativity. No two people are going to do the mm. same thing. So there is there's creativity in all of those processes. I mean, that's something I, we, my um, seminar in UEA yesterday, we, we just looked at the room we were in, and um, we tried to pick out particular details in the room that we thought other people wouldn't have noticed. And everybody wrote down completely different things. They all, and it was extraordinary, actually. The room kind of came alive, because we were bringing, each, each individual in the room was bringing their subjectivity to the perception of the, the data field as a biographer has to do, and each one is going to be drawn to different elements and images. What, yeah. I, what I think you, the, both, both of you probably have to deal with, which I uh, don't have to as much, although I've said that in my moments, is this vexed mm. and fascinating business of ethics. Uh, will, in the sense, with the music room, that you're writing about your family, and you're writing about deeply intimate matters, and you have siblings, and your parents are alive, and mm. what are you going to do about that? Mm. Um, Alexander, because you're right, I know Stuart uh, famously is not, is not with us, but um, Simon is, and he has a family who sound, you know, like they've got an eye on his, yes, you know, looking out for him. <laughs> it felt like that in the book, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you could be, you could be accused of exploiting yes. slightly vulnerable people in order yeah. to further your career. I wouldn't say that, but I'm... No, no, I, I think it's quite, I'm surprised I haven't been accused of it more, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and... And I once, I once very worriedly sort of asked this of a, a woman who was a philosopher in Edinburgh, and I said, you know, give me a decent reply. And she gave me this wonderful reply about why I wasn't exploiting people, which I can't remember. Unfortunately, <laughs> very involved and, and very clever. But I, I mean, in a way, that's part, again, coming back to this introduction of I and introduction about me being fallible and me showing my hand. I felt it's very important with both Stuart, but particularly with Simon, that it be known that this was my interpretation of the person. That mm -hmm. the other per the person could be saying, and Simon often does, says, look, you're hopeless in your job. You know, you haven't got this at all. You don't know this, you don't understand. And things he did say and still believes. Are you friends? Can I just Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I still rent a room in his house. Okay. Um, and, but it seemed to me, that, 
with, with such people, the people who have, Simon's got no reply. I mean, whatever I say about him will stick. He's not going to be able to answer because he doesn't write. And he, well, that's and, not quite the point. Yeah. So it has to be, with both, of the, both Stuart and in particular Simon, it has, to be a, it has to be agreement. There has to be something that goes on <coughs> where I show him the manuscript, he complains like mad about it, I change it until the point at which he feels he can accept it. And in order to enable that to happen, to, or to assist that happening without it ending up just being a bland mm. Simon praising Simon. And, and the buses. Yeah. yeah, and the buses. It has to be, <coughs> that's where I have to come in and say, look, there's my faults as well, and here, I'll tell you his fault, and here's my fault as a reporter of his fault, and you make up your mind which of those two you're going to take. So that, that eases off a little bit. But it's a, it's a dodgy one, because I don't know, I mean, this woman with the diaries, hell, I don't know. I mean, if she says... I spend a lot of time looking at these diaries. I haven't read them at all by any means, but once I found out her name and, and could get hold of her, then I'm now at this point, and I want to write this book. But how, you know, if she says... Presumably she's no, quite elderly. Yeah, yeah. And, she's, and she says no, then there's nothing I can do. I can't go ahead and write it. I think at that point, the ethics has to come in. You cannot trash someone mm. when they can't reply. Now, a famous person, I don't really care about trashing famous people either. They can always reply, and they can trash you back. But an unfamous person is just not on. And so you have to do it. It has to be a cooperative process. Well, can you just say a bit, because I'm sure this will interest an awful lot of people, this, this, because a lot of people are interested in writing family memoir. Mm. Um, and while most of us won't have, you know, none of us will have exactly the story you have to tell, you know, that when we write about our families, there will be sensitivities. They may not seem very important to everybody else, but we know yeah. what's upsetting to mum or what dad never wants yeah. to mention. So can you just say a little bit about Well, I, I, I completely agree that there is a, I think there is a huge ethical issue. And I, I think that the, the avoidance of harm is a general moral principle that applies to writers as much as it does to people in other walks of life. And but I, at the same time, I don't think there are general rules. I think it's impossible to say to people, you can do this, you can't do that. It depends on the particular situation, the particular relationships involved. Um, and I've had a tiny bit of experience of this in a slightly frivolous way with the snow geese, which, in which my <coughs> mother and father have a small sort of a role. And, I, and um, when I finished the, manuscript, the first draft of the book, I gave, it, I gave it to my mother, and she read it sort of overnight. And the next morning, I was very sort of nervous to see what she did. My first book, I was very nervous to see what she thought about it. And she said, um, I think it's really wonderful. The only thing is, Dad gets seven more mentions than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I then, in another draft, put in several mentions of my mother. That were, and I tried to explain to her that the book was sort of inspired by the Odyssey, which is about fathers and sons, about Telemachus. <laughs> it's about Telemachus following Odysseus and about Odysseus coming back to... Uh, Laertes, Laertes and so on and, um, uh, and also that the father in the book has a kind of um, religious echo the, the father is the creator and that it's about create the created world and the discovery of the created world and the world actually coming alive to this person who's sort of just been reborn after an, a kind of extinction of this illness um, and that these were very important themes, and that's why the father was so much more important. She wasn't having any of that. Um, so I did put in a few more mentions, but then obviously, of course, it, uh, when I started to write about, or thought that I might write about Richard, but it, it, that, that sensitivity was far more pressing mm. and, and, and foregrounded for me. And I worried, I, I, I worried desperately, because I'm very close to my family, and 
Um, and I think there are various things. Initially, when I started writing down my memories of Richard, I didn't think it was going to be a book. He died maybe five years before, about five years before. So, and maybe enough time had elapsed that the, the memory of him wasn't, or the loss wasn't so raw. <coughs> And, I, and I'd suddenly noticed that things were slipping, details were slipping. You think some, you lose someone close to you, you think you're going to remember everything, and in fact, things start to slide. The things he said, um, his little behaviours, his sense of humour, all the details of it were just going. So I started to write them down, almost feeling like a salvage diver, going down to the sea floor and pulling up these candlesticks and chests and jewels before they got kind of covered over with the sand and the silt, trying to rescue things from time, really. That was the kind of first impulse. And then as more and more as I thought of it not being just for me, but perhaps a book that might be meaningful for other people, that, that might be a richness for other people, it was more when I saw that Richard's life and my experience with him in this extraordinary house, there were such huge currents in those images and stories and scenes that were about far more than just us. They were about life being made up of beautiful one beauty and wonder and love and also sorrow and difficulty and loss and pain. And all of those things being part of the same experience. Um, so then when I, I was really starting to think, well, this, this should be a book. This should be for everybody. And then, of course, my immediate worry was how that would devolve onto my parents and my surviving brother and sister. And I, I was trying to sort of strike this balance between wanting to collaborate with them or talk to them, and but not wanting to show them it as I went along to the extent that it might hinder me mm. or hold me back. But I, I talked tremendously and then I gave them the manuscript and I was completely open to what they thought. and. And if any of them had said this is pain, too painful, or I, I would have you would have ditched the project, would you? I would have probably ditched the project or changed the project. I mean, the problem was that my my mother and father were so sort of loving that even if they had been made very miserable by by I don't know if they'd have told me because yeah. they wouldn't have wanted to make me miserable. Um, were you but, I could ask a very vulgar question. Were you contracted? Had to, had you been paid in advance for the book? Well, not until I'd written quite a lot of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but also, at the same time, always with the music room, I wanted it to be kind of intimate, but without being confessional. And there are lots of moments in the music room where the narrator just stops and says, I'm, I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to... That's enough. That's sacred ground. And there are all these places in the book that are sort of sacred territories, mm -hmm. I think. And... and um, uh, and it was odd that so the various responsibilities I feel I think writers feel writing a book you you want to you want to be um, you feel a loyalty to yourself and to your own self-expression to making something that's beautiful and moving and original and a loyalty to a, your what you hope will be your reader that it's going to be a rewarding experience for them and a rich experience for them and I had this these additional loyalties as Alexander would have experienced with his book too to want you to do justice to people involved, to Richard and to my parents, and, and also wanting in no way to cause pain to people that I, I love. So I was constantly trying to sort of have all those things in mind. And I did make a, a 
I mean, I, my, my family were incredibly sort of welcoming of the book. I think felt lifted up by it, actually. My mother said it's made sense of something that didn't make any sense. And um, I, I, I think that also you're often surprised by what people do find difficult. And you think, oh, they're really going to hate this. Mm. This isn't going to work at all. But I've got to show it to them just to make sure, and they don't even notice it. But, then but they, there's another thing down here, yeah. and they're really kicking up a little fuss about that. Yeah, well, I'll get rid of that. Yeah. Well, my parents were thrilled by the book, actually. The one bit that my dad found upsetting was when I describe everyone going swimming in this moat. And, and, I, and my dad, who's quite a lot older, he's 91 now, he was sort of in his 70s and 80s when I was writing, about the period I was writing. And I described my father's bony white legs kicking in the murk. And he's, he's always been obsessed with this mention of the bony white legs. <laughs> and he sort of wanted me to take that out. But I certainly think that if someone was going to, if someone came to talk to me about a book that they knew was going to be very painful to somebody, I would want them to sort of interrogate that or, or be... You'd have to cooperate. I mean, you have to. There I mean, has you to, have yeah. to, you'll have to. The person who you think it might cause pain to has to see yeah. the book and say, either I don't mind that pain or it isn't yeah. actually causing pain. It's just, it's not fair otherwise. I it's in the news a lot now with the sort of Julie Marston and Rachel Cuss kind, really, yes. kind of books. But yeah. I'm just going to call a halt though because I think we, we need some questions and we're running out of time. So I just wanted, um, so I can see a hand, I don't know who it's attached to. Oh, it's Adrian. Hello. Um, just following up, thanks. Uh, just following on from the um, ethics thing, so a question for Alexander, really. Um, I very much enjoyed reading The Genius in My Place, but I think I would actually prefer it to be called the, like, My Landlord the Genius, because mm -hmm. mm. it's actually his house. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, on the second reading, I felt, I felt pretty queasy, actually, yeah. because I think you describe someone who's very, who appears very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, and you, I was reminded by the comment there that uh, both of the people you've written about have had the experience of being bullied. Um, and, but, and you go into some, some pretty graphic detail of how he was bullied, the terms which were used when he was bullied. Yep. You give an example of him recently being picked on on the streets on Cambridge. Um, he appears to be, I think you're careful to not use the word about it, he appears to have all the characteristics of somebody with Asperger's. Never you use never that use word. the word. Refuse no. to use that word. But you, you say a lot about it, which puts him very close to people with Asperger's. Yeah. And the question, so, is about informed consent, really. In what's, how do you reconcile the dilemma about somebody who appears very vulnerable, um, in a different way from Stuart, I mm -hmm. about, is he now vulnerable to being bullied? He's very identifiable. Thanks. Um, and, and has, does writing about him in that way draw attention to him, um, expose him to further risk? Oh, to, as in, here's someone you can bully? Yeah, I mean, not, not in the space. Well, I mean, okay, I, I suppose that's risk. I'd not thought of that one. And this is a guy on the streets, everyone, if the people cross the road rather than go up and meet him, well, what's he like as a human being? You know, so you have to appreciate him as he is now, everything you fear about him, everything you worry about him, everything he does that's odd. And you have to go through that and say, look, behind this is a human being we can admire who has done something which I feel is triumphant, is that he has lost a talent and remained a happy man. Now, this to me is a glorious achievement. But in order to understand that achievement, you have to understand the man. And I felt it particularly important with this man that, yes, he does get bullied. Um, and he's got bullied all his life. And 
you know, there are constantly people trying to protect him from being bullied. But more to the point, it seemed to me, could you take this man and say, this is someone we ought to treasure? I mean, the bullying is one thing. There are always going to be bullies in the world. But it's just the neighbours who ought to be nice to this man. It's the neighbours who ought to be thinking themselves, I'm damn lucky to live next to him. It's the people who used to be in the maths department with him, who, when I first went to speak to them about this book, said, does he have any friends? Why would you want to write about him? I cross the street when I see him. It's his brothers who, as soon as they realised the book was seriously going to come out, they perked up in their opinion of Simon. But before that, they were pretty dismissive of it. Wow, that's interesting. And it's very, you know, so I felt all the way through this, I think you're right. I mean, I had not thought of that as being a risk, but I think there are just risks about writing such a book all the time. But to me, and it was done in constant cooperation with Simon, the more valuable thing was to say that this was a valuable person, and this was someone we ought to admire, and who had something to tell us, and the last thing I want to do is put him down as Asperger's. I don't want, him, I don't want that word mentioned. I want him to be Simon, and you value Simon I'm not even sure he is Asperger's. But, but you value Simon because he's Simon. And you don't get the opportunity to say, I value him because he's this slightly freaky character over there who has this diagnosis that puts him apart from me. But you know, they're quite nice, those people. I want you to, you have to deal with Simon directly and no sort of filter between. Uh, you do call him sexless as an epitome. Yes. No, no, I'm, I'm, he is. That's he, what I mean by well, no, he, and, and he saw that. I showed it to him. I, I wrote it. I showed it to him. He, he read the manuscript three times. Yes, I'm all the time pushing to see what I can say about him. But this is an aspect of him. I can, I can see it, Chris Bixby. Yes. Um, I'm interested in this uh, permeable membrane between fiction and non-fiction, emerging out of what you're saying, but also out of the title, Creative Non-Fiction. It's very difficult to think of much non-fiction that isn't creative, uh, including those that are most determined to assert their authenticity and truth value, like Holocaust memoir, for example, or the plays put on at the tricycle where you'll take a, a trial that lasted weeks, or public inquiry that lasted months or years, and you turn it into a two-hour play. Every word of it can be sourced, but it's shaped into a narrative. It's a construction for a series of great books by journalists in America. Uh, like David Simon's book, Homicide, Life on the Killing Streets, which turned into a television series, or The Corner, which turned into The Wire, uh, or Bissinger's book, Friday Night Lights, which turned into a television show, or Evan Wright's Generation Kill, which turned into a television show. The te people who did the television, the people who wrote the books, insisted on the authenticity and truth of the They were reconstructing by memory things that were said, but they were also standing somewhere. They were also editing. They were also shaping this into a story, and I think they're actually great books. And I wouldn't like to put my hand on my heart and put them in a category. But what, what non-fiction isn't creative? Well, I've got to say, I don't want to put them in a category either, and it's, the creative non-fiction isn't my category. I, I don't want my books to have a label at all, actually. Uh, um, and I think that the, the sort of interest in putting labels on books only really starts to apply when they, when they enter the marketplace, when they have to be in publishers' catalogues and bookshops and have a shelf in the bookshops. I never knew what sort of book The Snow Geeks was. I liked it that when it went into bookshops, it went into different sections of the bookshop. Um, 
travel, nature, autobiography. A friend went looking for it in the Barnes & Noble in New York and found it in the pet care section there. <laughs> I, I, for me, that's a great thing. And similarly, the music room. I mean, it was most obviously described as a memoir, but I never thought of it as a memoir. I hated the word memoir. It starts with the word me and follows it up with the word moi, as if it's the kind of the me, me book. Um, and I thought it was about all of us. I, 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 I don't feel that categories are, I don't know if they're helpful necessarily. Um, I mean, there are points where you do need to know, where readers need to know that they can, they can rely on what the author is saying. You talk about the Holocaust memoirs. Well, there's the case of Benjamin Wilkowski's fragments, which turns out to be made up. And we, we need to know that that isn't made up. Can I just say uh, something? Yeah. I'm sorry. Can I just say, I, I, I have to go on record as the person that reviewed that and actually wrote, you know, this is a, a wonderful and deeply moving addition to Holocaust memoir. And that was used all over the paperback. I, so I was completely taken in by this, by fragments. Because um, it read to me incredibly truthfully. And the terrible thing is that the worst time in the Jewish community thought, yes, it's all fake, but actually, it's drawing attention to. Well, but can well, I? Then I can't just say. I, well, I think that's. But I think that's incredibly important. If if it has, if it has that kind of shimmer around, that kind of emotional power, um, does it matter whether it happens? You know, does. I mean, of course it does. But I think it's kind. Of, no, but I think it's interesting. I think it's really, really. Interesting. I just want to pick up on the idea of the books you mentioned in terms of creativity. I do think that. Um, Something I look for in, in, in that makes a reading experience especially rich is when there's a capacity for the details and the images to resonate beyond themselves, to be about something else, for there to be universal currents coming through the specific images and details, for the, the capacity to resonate, to provoke the imagination, to be available to multiple interpretations which you get in the best poems, and most poems are autobiographical, let's not forget. You get in the best poems and the best novels, and I think it's possible for non-fiction books to do that. But I do think that's a little bit different from Generation Kill and Homicide. Great books of reporting that they are, but I don't know if they have, if they have that capacity to be open to different interpretations and to provoke the imagination. And there is a difference between the highest kind of journalism and the poem. There is, there is a difference there. I think also it's much more, I mean, the journalism is, is, you know, good journalism obviously want to rely on the fact, I mean, the editor's obviously going to cut things and try and make it a bit more emotionally impressive and so on and so forth, and, and you can argue about that not being particularly truthful and what is truth and all this stuff. But it does seem if you're writing non-fiction and the person is not prepared to relax a bit, and use some opinions and, and say and stop being sort of all up on their high horse about this being objective. Those sort of books where they don't do that, it comes across much more as frightened fiction to me. Frightened as not as frightened non-fiction. Frightened. That's terrified of being seen to be, you know, that what someone might be accused of having an opinion or someone might be actually have to take responsibility for what they say. I yeah, I agree. I mean virtually all writing has obviously got a huge amount of fiction in it, in one way or another. It's quite difficult to write non-fiction without it. And when you do write it, it comes across as stilted and nervous mm. and, and fearful. Can I just ask you a quick, quick, quick question? You both deal with a big amount of technical information, maths, um, brain science. Were you worried um, that those books were going to be read by specialist, you know, by, by brain doctors? Um, <laughs> 
by higher mathematicians. Yeah, and they're two big mistakes, and none of them spotted it. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, because what's quite interesting is that if, if, you're, if you do make mistakes, you kind of go, well, I wasn't, hey, I wasn't, you know, I never said this is just my take on, the, you know, um, and that can feel a little bit awfully. Well, I, I definitely want, want the science in the music room to be Spotting. strong, to be yeah, really, really strong. strong. And, and um, so I spend a lot of time, and going to the primary, I think the important thing is in that sense is to go to the primary sources rather than the secondary ones, so to read the original papers about the experiments and so on. Um, but then to defer to other people's expertise, and I, I asked about three or four neuroscientists, um, uh, epilepsy specialist, a neurologist, an epilepsy surgeon, to all read the manuscript to make sure it was sort of okay. Um, uh, but but yes, and, and, and I suppose that I was always using myself as a rule of thumb for how for how far I would talk about the science. I mean, I, I'm long to read Alexander's Simon book, but because I'm sort of interested to know how you do the maths and how and we you make the maths accessible. Maths, yeah. Yeah. I, I get around it with, yeah. with cartoons. I so this is the one thing that most of us, I have to finish now, but one of the things that most of us don't have, we can't do the illustrations to our own well, books. I, Alexander can. Yeah, it's, it's through just doodling, doodling, doodling. And the reason for the, the, the maths is I just thought if you, whenever you say the word maths to people, they normally just sag. So I thought if you rewarded them with a little cartoon strip, as soon as the word mask came out, somewhere in the inside of the cartoon strip, <coughs> sort of even it out, people well, might go ahead. I'm going to say thank you very, very much to my guests. I'm sure we've, we've run over. So uh, thank you very much to William Fines and to Alexander Martin. <laughs>